Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. And this week we are speaking with Dr. Gavril Schneider of Risk2 Solutions uh, about the, the role that security plays in crisis management and crisis communications. And uh, we're talking about how that can be managed from the point of view of the current pandemic and the vaccine rollout, using it as a model for what's worked well and what hasn't. Gav, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me back, John. That's all right. Welcome back to the podcast. Now, this um, this current vaccine rollout, we're not here to pass judgment on anyone or talk about, you know, this has been done well or that's been done poorly. What we're actually looking at is if I was a security manager within an organisation and I am, as they increasingly are, responsible for crisis management and crisis communications, what can we learn from the way that this vaccine rollout has been managed? Really good topic, John, and happy to explore this also from the lens of risk-based decision-making and trying to look at you know futuristic forecasting as well as gathering the information we have at the moment. So I think your, your initial observation is right. What we have seen through COVID is that security managers, security consultants and experts in dealing with things that go wrong have had a far broader role during COVID than might be written up in their job descriptions or KPIs. And I think this is a, a sign of things to come where security professionals you know, do come with a slightly different skill set to, let's say, conventional risk or business continuity managers. Yep. And we are used to dealing with erratic people who might not make rational decisions. And we are then also used to trying to, you know, determine what a threat may look like and then come up with a contingency plan around that. Yep. So, you know, with, I guess, that piece in mind and with your topic of, you know, the current, uh, let, let's say, uh, limited rollout of the vaccines, yep. it, it, it poses significant questions for businesses. And when we say business, let's include those chief security officers or security managers in government departments too. Yep as to where they need to be focusing their effort, energy and resources for the short term and potentially the longer term. Yep. So it would seem to me that in any kind of crisis communications plan, and again, anyone who's listening to this from government, we're not having a go, we're just having a discussion, but the process begins with maybe something like, let's have a plan. Because if you don't have a plan, it's kind of hard to do anything beyond that. Well, I, th I think it's interesting that there's this comfort that's created by having a plan. The challenge seems to come when the plan was based on variables or data or information that then proves to be inconsistent, inaccurate, or potentially the plan itself is not fit for the um, implementation based on some changes in the environment. Yep. So if we can, let's, let's talk COVID yep. strategically for a little. Sure. Uh, you know, Australia has done exceptionally well in the early parts of COVID management. I think everybody would agree with that. Having said that, we were certainly in a position where we had lots going for us. Yep. We're an island. We're a small population comparatively. Uh, we, we have effective law enforcement border control capabilities. Yep. Uh, we have a great healthcare and medical system compared to many other places around the world. So to, to be honest, not to downplay the success we had last year in managing the virus, uh, it was more or less ours to lose, not ours to win, yes. compared to, for example, the UK or Europe that was porous. Yep. So, so if we look back, 
I think part of the challenge, and I'll, I'll use some of the psychology of risk pieces we often talk about, uh, you know, we, we have something called the halo effect, which is where we see one good or bad thing and then we link everything else to that. Yep. And I think part of the challenge is we had this halo effect around our initial management of the virus. And we naturally assumed because we had done well managing the health risk that we would do well with the vaccine rollout. Yep. And, you know, as we've seen, if, and, you know, this is not, as you said, me and you having a go. Yep. Uh, realistically, if we compare where we are in terms of vaccination compared to many other countries in the world, we certainly haven't performed as well. No. So, you know, I think there's a few pieces. The first one I think we need to talk about is not necessarily the government's role in this or businesses' role in it. It's the public and perception. And yeah. that we have this anchoring bias combined with risk aversion, which are very well-known biases. Yeah. And, you know, practically you spoke about crisis communication early on. The challenge we've got is when people become adrenalized and stressed, they will always look for the protectionist piece. Remember that our flight or fight instinct kicks in and we focus only on those two variables and we think of harm. Yep. So we'll do way more to prevent harm than we will to gain benefit. Yes. Which, which is why we see the general public, you know, so much more predisposed to lockdowns or border closures than we should be rationally because I'm quite sure that in years to come when we look back, we're going to find the economic effect, the business disruption, the socio and psychosocial risks, and the damage done based on those will outstrip the loss of lives and the expenditure we've had in managing COVID. I'm, I'm quite confident in that. Can I jump in there for a second, though, and get you to go back and explain the psychology behind this? Because for the people listening to this that aren't familiar with it, there's an entire school of psychological thinking around how people would rather miss the opportunity to make a dollar than lose the dollar before they get to spend it. So can you explain how that works? Sure. So I think a few things on that, and let's, let's talk biases, because most decisions are made with cognitive biases, which are, you know, intuitive, instinctive decision-making processes, instead of risk-based decision-making, which involves you know, quite simply looking at likelihood consequence, weighing up pros and cons, gathering as much information as we can, and then allocating limited resources based on that thought process, yep. which is significantly different to, as, as you mentioned, you know, things like herd mentality or groupthink that tend to evolve. And, you know, you specifically mentioned a few, a few ones for me to focus a bit more on. And so let's just talk a little about risk aversion. Yep. And, it's quite well acknowledged that Australia is generally risk averse in our decision-making compared to other countries. Yep. And, and, you know, when we do these sort of risk quantification exercises, it's always important for us to go, who are we comparing ourselves to if we make a statement? Yep. So, you know, for example, Singapore now who have accepted that this is now a virus that is here to stay and, you know, have then adjusted their risk appetite and tolerance accordingly based on that decision. Yep. Australia doesn't seem to have accepted that reality. Yep. And we, we don't seem to have been able to actually accept the fact that, you know, COVID is not going to go anywhere. Even if we fully vaccinated our population, people will still get COVID and potentially get a little sick from COVID. We just won't see the fatalities and the risk level diminishes. 
So again, sorry to jump in, but where is that change in thinking important in relation to things like lockdowns? Because we're seeing continual rolling lockdowns and there's debate going on in the community from a risk point of view of at what point do we just accept there is an element of risk involved in this and stop chasing the unicorn of elimination like we do here in Victoria and just say, from a risk perspective, life has to go on. Excellent point, John. So I think the fun, there's a few pieces, right? And I think the vaccination piece is a critical component. And if we take this back to just fundamental risk management, you know, we, we identify risks. So we, we've identified COVID. We are seeing that it is morphing and changing and adapting. That is knowledge we all had from the beginning. You know, we've, we've had the flu virus for a long time. We know how flu morphs and changes. So this shouldn't be a surprise that COVID is changing. What we haven't necessarily seen is that COVID has gotten more deadly. Mm -hmm. It certainly has become more contagious as we see, for example, the Delta strain, but that doesn't equate necessarily to it being more deadly. Yep. Um, So if we, if we go back to a likelihood and consequence discussion and we go realistically, if we look at likelihood, COVID's not going anywhere, it's had to stay and it'll keep morphing. Yep. So it became more of a consequence management piece, right? And this is where I think we've got confused both as a public and potentially from a leadership and decision-making perspective. And there's certainly no fault in our health experts and health bureaucrats who are guiding us, but they are looking at it from one layer of expertise. Yep. And when the, then we are superimposing that layer of expertise across economic, so, uh, psychosocial risks and all the other things that are now evolving. I mean, a colleague of mine in New South Wales mentioned that suicide rates are up in, in the Eastern suburbs and you know you can't get a mental health uh, support appointment at the moment yeah so you know those are things we're ignoring with this blind focus on covid as the big picture challenge we're trying to overcome yep so let's just go back to the idea of risk treatment then so if we've identified something we've identified the likelihood and consequence okay and now we look at the treatment yeah so realistically from a treatment perspective lockdowns were the only tool we kind of had in addition to, you know, things like social distancing, masks, et cetera. Yep. But they were a tool that was used pre-vaccination. Okay. They were also a tool that was used when we had no idea how deadly COVID could be. Yep. And it also then creates a discussion point for us around bias checking where, you know, the way we get fed data is, is fascinating because we keep seeing deaths reported as COVID deaths, as opposed to in many cases, what most of us are thinking is, are these people that died with COVID or people that died because of COVID? That's right. And it's not something that's well explained. When someone has comorbidities that are contributing to the death, it might be that, you know, someone had pneumonia and then caught COVID and died as a result of the COVID on top of the pneumonia, which is then attributed to a COVID death. But really, is it? And that's not clear. Absolutely. So we're actually now at a point where this data is so confused and the general public is fed so much statistical information. And for those who can't see me, I did have, you know, bunny ears parentheses there about statistics because, you know, is it really important to know how many cases we've got if those cases are contained, self-isolated or in quarantine? Yeah. To a degree, those cases are almost irrelevant because they're already treated and managed. Yes. So, you know, again... I do think there's this game that's being played. And, it, and if, we, if we go back to treatment, you know, vaccines are deemed to be that Hail, you know, the Hail Mary, the great saviour 
that once we have enough people vaccinated, we get herd mentality, sorry, herd immunity. Herd mentality is, yep. is just what's driving kind of, I guess, some of the negative outcomes we've got. Yeah. So right now, the lockdowns technically should be a stalling mechanism for people to get vaccinated for us to get herd immunity. Yep. And if you talk about crisis communications, like that's just not being communicated. No. We just keep getting this communication of, we've got cases we have to lock down. Yep. Not, we, we have to lock down. Here is the roadmap to the opening of the country. Yep. So I, I do note that, you know, uh, our leaders are meeting today to talk through some of the stuff and hopefully create a roadmap. But I do think this narrative of lockdowns keep us safe has probably worn thin. Yep. Now, where realistically, actually vaccinations would be what would keep us safe. Yep. And our effort and energy should be put into that. And, you know, whether we like it or not, we don't have another viable option that would protect us more than the vaccine rollout at the moment. And it seems that part of the challenge, and correct me if I'm wrong, part of the challenge, it begins with plan, having a, a confident, viable plan, but then communicating that plan effectively to the rest of the executive leadership leadership team and ensuring that you're getting buy-in across the entire team. Because, again, to use COVID as an analogy, and we are really only using it as an analogy here as it's a convenient one, it seems that there's a lot of cross-communication and miscommunication amongst the senior leadership if we look at, you know, the federal government and the state leaders as to how this is to be done and, and what's to be done. And it's a really interesting model because you're going to see factions within any organisation, across departments, across areas of the group, where you're going to need to get everyone to come together and buy in. So what can we learn from this and what we're seeing? It's an excellent question, John. I always enjoy our chats. Um, the, the point you make is critical, right? So if we take crisis management from an organisational perspective, while we might have dissenters or people who don't tow the party line, every good crisis management structure is set up with a crisis committee or a crisis group lead, and that lead ultimately has the decision-making authority. And this is the failing we've seen in the way you know, we go federally and state in that, yes, we technically have a crisis lead being our prime minister, but we don't, he doesn't have the authority to enforce decisions that are made, which yeah. has shown the failure and the miscommunication and the mixed messaging. You know, the AstraZeneca example is just one example. And to your point, you know, I, I think the mixed messaging that's come out, you know, oh, you can't have AstraZeneca if you're below 50. No, it's below 60. No, hold on, it's good for people under 40 again. Yep. Um, you know, you, you can't but help go, hold on a second. Yeah. Okay. A, the public could have been primed better yep. around that. And B, let's get on the same page with what we communicate. For better or for worse, yep. sometimes confusion is worse than chopping and changing the whole time. Yep. But I do think there's two things we have to remember at this point. One is decision fatigue. Yep. Every leader, and if we're talking about our security managers who might have led crisis management teams, formed them, or been driving business continuity measures, or even security providers who've had to you know, deploy security staff to COVID hotels and those sort of things. It, if we want to look where we're going forward, I think we need to understand where we're at and where we're at is not a good place. Yeah. Be, so, simply because our uh, vaccination rates are very low. 
our leaders are using inconsistent messaging, which is creating more confusion. Yep. We keep stimulating the survival response by telling people if we don't lock down, people will die. Yep. Okay, which is is you know to a degree not true in many ways yep. because people will die anyway in some cases, which is a harsh comment to make, but they might have, to your point, have comorbidities and be dying of flu or cancer or something anyway. Yep. Or people will get sick and get better. Yep. Okay. And, you know, primarily lockdowns were designed for our hospital and health system to cope. Yep. You know, our hospital and health systems are nowhere near getting overwhelmed. Yep. Which, which kind of, you know, if we were in a different position where they were getting overwhelmed, you know, it's a different thing to put lockdowns in and do all these other pieces. Yep. So it's almost, you know, that old story for a carpenter, you know, every problem is a hammer and a nail. Yep. Um, it seems like we've fallen into this rut. And the challenge we've got now, as, as I said, was that first the decision-making fatigue. Yep. When, when you know, our leaders and leaders in any organization have to make lots and lots and lots of complex decisions that have multiple uh, outcomes in a very short period of time, we over over time become less effective at that. So what we've seen happen now is decision fatigue and leadership fatigue. Yeah. Where people don't want to make decisions anymore because they've had to make too many. Yeah. So it's much easier just to default to what did we do last time? Yeah. And I think it's really important to again point out to anyone listening to this. These are complex problems. They're not simple solutions, and we're not sitting here trying to armchair quarterback the whole thing. This is purely a hypothetical discussion to discuss how it could be done better. So in that context, we've discussed that, you know, we've reached the point of decision fatigue. We've reached the point of sort of, you know, a little bit of COVID fatigue and all the rest of it. But we need to change the narrative and we need to change our thinking around how some of this is being led Um, because we want to drive positive outcomes, both amongst um, the community with regard to how they need to behave during lockdowns and with regard to how they should view vaccinations. And if we were to view this through the lens of, an organization that needed to change the behavior of its culture. You know, I'm, I'm understanding we're pressed for time because we're sort of coming towards the end of what you've got available, but talk a little bit about decision science and how we can use, um, you know, decision science to drive behavioral outcomes that are more in line with what we want to do. Sure. So I think part of the problem we've got, if we start looking at decision science and influence, which the two, the two are, interrelated is that we now have well over a year of psychological programming that's happened to everyone. Yep. And the narrative that has become the common narrative is COVID is deadly. Okay. And we need to lock down. We need to protect, we need to keep, uh, you know, the approaches that have kept people safe to date in play where realistically it's more of a question now of actually we have a vaccine, in fact, multiple vaccines, how quickly could we roll those out? And for our, for our security experts, it's almost the equivalent of saying, hey, you know, we've got a security risk and a security threat. We've got multiple tools to use. Okay, why are we not highlighting the most effective tool at this case, which, case, which is vaccination? So when it comes to decision science and how we do it, Daniel Kahneman, who's one of the world's leading experts in this, talks about system one and system two thinking. System one is our intuitive reflexive thinking and system two is our deep analytical thinking. 95% of our decisions roughly are made with system one, intuitively and reflexively. 
So the challenge we've got now is, as you said earlier, we'll do so much more to protect ourselves from harm than we will do to gain benefit. Yep. So as a result of that, you know, it, it's interesting to see how many people, every time there's a lockdown, you see this almost shift between people like you and I who are trying to run businesses and trying to get involved in lots of different projects to solve problems to, you know, let's say people who are semi-retired or retired who are of the perspective that as long as borders stay closed and we shut down every time there's a problem, they'll be safe. Yep. So, you know, if we look at decision science, first thing we have to do is start to change the narrative away from safe being locked down and locked out to the reality of where the world is already at, that COVID is here to stay. And safe means coming up with ways to live with the virus as opposed to pretend it doesn't exist and have it not impact us. Yeah. So from a decision architecture perspective, we really, really should be putting more and more effort into driving vaccination and trying to get to that herd immunity point where, don't get me wrong, we will still have COVID and people will still get sick, but our health system won't be overwhelmed and it will become literally like the flu. And And it's interesting to see how many health experts have spoken about this, but then politically get shut down. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing to say, you know, we will still get COVID, but we won't get necessarily the deaths that we were getting before. The risk profile diminishes to some degree. Now, Gav, I'm aware that uh, we need to wrap this up, but for... For those people listening, if you would like to know a little bit more about what Gav was talking about, especially in the area of decision science and some of these things, there's a fantastic book you can get called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman that goes into uh, System 1, System 2 thinking. There's another great book uh, by Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler called Nudge that is also a fantastic read for any security manager. And Gav, whereabouts do we find more information on you? Thanks, John. So we've actually just launched our new set of resilience, leadership, and high-performance short courses, which are three days face-to-face or four or half days virtual, where we teach a lot of the stuff. And what we found is that having run a postgraduate program in this stuff for the last five years, most of the people who need this knowledge and skills don't have 10 months to come and do a postgrad program. So we've tried to shorten it. We're doing a customized program. So if any of your uh, listeners go, I'd like my management team to understand this stuff, uh, please reach out. We can come up with bespoke programs or jump onto resilience.edu.au or resilience.info. Um, or if you're looking at the business continuity side of it and emergency management response side of it, just check out our normal website, risktosolution.com. But uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn, please. I I love talking about this stuff. I'm a self-acknowledged risk nerd. And uh, I I really do think that the security sector has got so much more we can be adding to this, not just guarding or thermal imaging cameras. Yep. And, you know, the the leaders in their organizations who've helped, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of organizations around the world manage this risk are very often these security, business continuity and risk managers who are the unsung heroes. So, you know, from my side to sign off, John, thank you for the opportunity to talk about some of this. And thank you to all of you out there who, while you might not have had the uh, kudos you deserve, I know a lot of you have made the difference in your organizations being able to keep functioning through COVID. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Gav, thanks for coming on the program. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like more podcasts like this one, there's plenty of them in the ASIO series. You can find them on Blurberry, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, all the great places where you can get podcasts. And uh, Gav, we look forward to having you back on again in the not too distant future to talk about the Horizon Report and some of the research you've been doing in security, which you will be presenting around at the security conference, which is now being held from the 17th to the 19th of November at the ICC in Sydney. We look forward to chatting to you about that then. Thanks, John. Thanks, everyone. We'll we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.